This is News Talk 980 CKNW. Well, I just tweeted out a photo of the plaza in front of the Vancouver Art Gallery. It's been under construction for many, many months. It is starting to take shape, to take form. You can see how it's going to look when it's all opened up to the public. And later on, I want to get your take on, well, your thoughts on the new plaza and the importance of public spaces. But first, we are joined by Lance Berlowitz. He is a principal with Urban Forum Associates. He's an urban planner, and he joins us on the line. Lance? Thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. Uh, You've written about this uh, on August 7th that you wrote a piece about this. uh, It was in the Vancouver Sun uh, about the plaza, about uh, the new space uh, that we've seen uh, coming coming to a coming together in front of the art gallery. What are your thoughts? And I know you were on the the initial design team. What are your thoughts about how it looks today? Well, I'm pretty excited about where it's gotten to. And as you just said in your intro, um, it's just about complete. They're just putting the, f- the finishing touches on it. Uh, and I think once the fence comes down and everything and the working, the workers are out of there, um, I think people will appreciate the, the clarity and the simplicity of the design. Uh, and that was quite deliberate. We were trying to do something that was a little different from what we usually see in Vancouver, which uh, in terms of open space tends to blur the line between plaza and park. Uh, and I think this is very clearly an urban square. It's not trying to pretend to be a park in the middle of the city. Uh, because that space used to be, if you go back to before the 2010 Olympics, that space was very uh, well known as the lawns in front of the art gallery, a place for people to gather, uh, to sit. So it really has had quite a transformation. I would agree with that, although historically it was an urban square. It was the forecourt to the original uh, provincial courthouse building many, many decades ago when it was still the courthouse. Uh, And so in a way, we were sort of bringing it back into civic play and offering it back to the city of Vancouver and the citizens uh, of our city uh, as a place to gather, to assemble, to come together, to celebrate, to demonstrate or whatever people want to do. And I think that's really important for the city to have a space such as that in the heart of the city. We have lots of green space. And uh, this, as I say, the design team's take on this was that uh, this could serve a different role and has a different destiny in the future of the city of Vancouver. And when you say we don't have a lot of green space right downtown, though. Well, we have Stanley Park not very far away. And, of course, we have the seawall all the way around the downtown peninsula. And in addition to that, of course, there are local parks as well uh, in downtown south and in various other parts of the city in the West End. So um, I think, you know, it's it's not set up as an opposition to that. It's just an alternative to that. Uh, this is a space that is in the heart of the city. Uh, it is hard surfaced quite consciously in order to be able to uh, be used in a multitude of different ways and configurations. Um, and what's interesting is that those people who are concerned or might be uh, you know, wondering about where is the landscaping, uh, the fact is that there are actually more trees now, new healthy trees planted in the space than they were uh, before the design uh, changed it. And I guess and so that has been some of the criticism, I suppose, of it, or some of the comments have been, it just looks so gray. It looks so stark and with hard edges, and, and it, it, it is different. It is different, and it's more like a, a, a European model of an urban square. But I would say that uh, give, give it time, wait for the citizens of Vancouver, the people of Vancouver, uh, to take possession of the space, and I believe it will become very colorful and uh, animated. Uh, I think that's what's obviously missing right now is that obviously currently with the fences up, uh, it's not open yet. So I think once people once people literally take possession of that space, uh, it'll be anything but gray and colorless. I think it'll become very colorful. 
and it will resume its rightful role as the heart of the city. And we'll be seeing great events there and celebrations, um, festivals and so on. And uh, we certainly look forward to seeing that. Do you think it'll be a welcoming place, though, for people to simply gather and to pe- for people to hang out? Or is, is it meant to be that way? Absolutely. I think it will. I think the point about it being a relatively neutral space is that people can put their own stamp in it. They can use it in their own way. They can take over large areas or they can just take up a little corner or they can you know, pull up a seat. Uh, one of the things that we'd like to see is a robust uh, programming and operations plan for the space, which could include, for example, movable tables and chairs and so on, so that people can actually come in and use the space as they see fit. Uh, you wrote uh, in uh, the piece uh, that you that you had about this uh, about the the viewpoint. If you're sitting in the space, uh, the the where you're looking, whether you're looking, you're not really taking advantage of the architecture around you. Rather, you'll be looking out at the streets around you, which isn't quite as exciting or beautiful. Can you explain that a bit more? Well, if you think about traditional or historical um, public squares in, say, Europe uh, and elsewhere, Eastern uh, North America. Uh, the, squ- the spaces are typically defined by the buildings around their edges, and typically the space, the squares will go all the way out to the edge of those building facades that define the space, the vertical dimension. Uh, in this case, there are three really busy streets uh, that surround the square on three sides, and uh, only on the south side, the former courthouse, currently the Vancouver Art Gallery building, actually defines the space and, and, and engages with it directly on, along the south side. So I think there is uh, still an opportunity to do that, perhaps in the future, sort of, you know, version two, um, where, whereby the streets themselves have become part of the space. They would be captured in the public space, and we would rethink the design, at least conceptually, of those streets as they surround the, as they surround the square. So there are lots of examples of that all over the world, where streets cross over into public squares, which are pedestrian-oriented, but still allow traffic to move through them. And I think that's an opportunity that still awaits its day. I mean, when you talk about this, too, uh, and comparing it to to squares in Europe, the first thing I thought about, and I love a lot of the squares in the European cities because they are such gathering places, but you often see children playing in those spaces as well and kicking balls around while while their parents are eating and enjoying a meal. I can't see that in this space right now because all I see is a ball going flying out onto Georgia Street. Yeah, and I think that's an example of what we're talking about is that that's an opportunity that still, you know, awaits uh, its its delivery. I think that those streets are a challenge, in particular Georgia Street, because as we Vancouverites know, Georgia Street is a is a major arterial right through the city and connects to Lionsgate Bridge, uh, and that traffic's not going to go away anytime soon. Um, and 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 the other two streets, Howe and Hornby, are both one way couplets. You know, the one is one way north, and the one is the other way south. So. Again, those are two very important sort of arterial streets through the city. So I think calming that traffic through there um, is, is one of the things that I think we could still perhaps look at in the future um, and perhaps you know, slowing the traffic down or at least changing the, the surface of those streets, thinking about extending the ground plane out to the walls of the buildings that surround the square and help engage with the uses from those buildings into the square. I think a part of what we're looking for is food services and so on. In the space, uh, again, like typical European squares, you'll often see, you know, kiosks and things in the square or cafes surrounding them and, and, and sort of spilling out into the space. So I think um, you have to kind of squint a little bit at it right now, but I think we've laid the groundwork. We've laid the table 
for those things to develop over time as as the city matures and and embraces the space. Uh, We've had a a stretch of very hot, dry weather here. We did get some rain this morning. (laughs) Uh, One of the concerns is covered space in that it's beautiful in the summertime when you're sitting outside. Maybe you've gone to a food truck and you're sitting out there. But what about the rest of the year when it rains? Well, that's a legitimate fact. That's 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 a fair comment, and and I think you know there is a small covered area along the northern, the eastern side of the space. There's that white pavilion structure uh, facing House Street, uh, and part of the thinking behind that was to provide some coverage uh, for people people to be able to sit underneath that. Uh, and and the other thing I would mention is that you know one day when the Vancouver Art Gallery decides whether or not it's staying in that building or perhaps relocating as they were hoping to do there is an opportunity to provide some kind of a connection into the art gallery building from the square, potentially. As you know, the original front door of the courthouse building opened onto the square, and that's been closed for decades now since it was converted to the gallery. So I think there are opportunities, again, once uh, the decision around the Vancouver Art Gallery is confirmed, uh, if it does relocate, uh, of actually physically connecting from the square into that building and perhaps also adding weather coverage, weather protection along the side of that building, or even just temporary umbrellas and things like that. You know, if you have like a food kiosk or a food truck and that type of thing, you could have umbrellas set up as well in the space. All right. One more question before I let you go. The fountain. People still lament the loss of the fountain. I can't imagine why. (laughs) People like to put soap in it. Oh, that's really cool. (laughs) We wouldn't have minded having a fountain, by the way. The design team did look at the idea of a water feature. uh, And in the end, I have to be candid about that, that the client, the city of Vancouver, nixed that because of costs and operational issues and concerns about maintaining it. Uh, You know, again, there was a very modest construction budget relative to these types of spaces elsewhere in the world, which we did look at and explore. And there was only so much we could do. So we've kind of laid the tablecloth, as it were. Uh, and invite guests over now for dinner, and we look forward to seeing how the festivals take over the space. All right, Lance Brulowitz, thank you so much for your time this morning. I appreciate it. Not at all. Thank you, Joe. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That is Lance Berlowitz. He's a Vancouver-based urban planner. He's a principal with Urban Forum Associates. He was on the original design team for the new square. When we come back after the news headlines to the bottom of the hour, I want to hear from you on this, and we can have a bigger discussion about public spaces as well. But if you work downtown, perhaps you've walked by the space, you've driven by the space, maybe you live near the space, we can see it from our studios. I do want to hear from you about the this newest square in Vancouver. What do you think? There has been criticism saying it's too stark, it's too concrete, there are no chairs. And as Lance mentioned, this is just the beginning, it is just opening up. But I want to hear from you and what you think about this space. We'll open up the phone lines when we return, right after your news headlines to the bottom of the hour. Well, yesterday on the program, we talked, or at least I talked, a little bit about the court ruling when it uh, came to the husband and wife team that took their 13-year-old daughter across the border to marry Warren Jeffs. And it was the first time we had seen a court ruling in which the parents, in this case, uh, Brandon Blackmore and his wife, Gail, uh, be given jail time. My concern was, though, there seemed to be this uh, applause. There seemed to be this... uh, positive uh, outcome, people saying that this sent the right message 
uh, to people. Uh, but uh, we're going to talk a bit more about that later on in the program because I've been getting uh, a lot of response about that particular story. So if you still want to weigh in on that one, you can always uh, call the buzz line. But we are going to talk a little bit about NAFTA, as I mentioned, negotiations starting up. But what is at stake? What can Canada expect in the NAFTA talks? Keith Head is a professor in the Strategy and Business Economics Division at the Souter School of Business over at UBC and joins us on the line. Professor, thank you so much for being with us. Uh, good morning. I'm happy to be here. Good morning. Uh, what can we expect? Uh, we tend to uh, hear the words NAFTA negotiations. We don't spend a whole lot of time uh, thinking about it or looking at it, but what should we be focused on as these talks get underway? I think that's the, the really good question to ask because we're going to hear about a lot of things and the real danger is that you end up focusing on the wrong things. Um, and so uh, there's sort of two things going on. One will be the normal sort of trade negotiations in which the Americans will come to us with their various uh, frustrations over our policies in areas like, uh, you know, lumber, dairy, wine. Um, and uh, But the other thing is that Trump is looking for victories, you know, uh, wins. And often, you know, he sees things in adversarial terms. And when he looks at trade agreements, he tends to focus on trade deficits. And so that big picture we shouldn't lose sight on that, you know, that, that uh, we're dealing with somebody who's going to be negotiating or, or whose, whose end goal is a bit different from, from normal, normal negotiations. Um, you're right. And, and I would think anybody going into a trade negotiation, you want the best deal for your country and not everybody can get the best deal. If that was possible, these would be easy. Uh, yeah, there's some, some, to some extent that's true. Um, but there are ways to get better deals and worse deals. Um, so the ways to get a bad deal are probably to, you know, negotiate to the bone um, on, and be really difficult on things like uh, dairy and selling wine in the grocery stores, uh, things that aren't where we really don't have a lot at stake, um, and then not focus on the things that are really important. And the really important thing is that NAFTA is an agreement that works pretty well for North American manufacturing. In other words, it's an agreement where there are these very, very complex value chain networks where goods cross the borders between Canada, the U.S., and Mexico, and the U.S., you know, up to eight times before it reaches the final consumer. You don't want to wreck that. So what we really need to go in there, you know, and emphasizing is don't wreck Team North America. Team North America plays pretty well together as a team, and it makes us stronger in competition against, say, China. And that's, that's the kind of language that Trump will understand and I think it will help uh, us come out of this renegotiation looking better. Uh, when you mentioned dairy, do you think is supply demand on their radar? Are they? Uh, we, we've heard rumblings that they're not, uh, well, at least some parts of the states, not all that keen on supply demand in Canada. Do you think that will come up? So I think you mean uh, the supply management system, right? Right. And, and, and talking about dairy and talking about the milk, milk yeah. producers. So, so, I mean, the, the thing with dairy is that we... I don't know exactly who gave the orders for this, but for years and years and years, our trade negotiators put this huge priority on not giving up anything on dairy. But in fact, dairy is extremely protected now. It has tariffs in the 100 percentiles. It um, has quotas as well. The, the net result is that dairy farmers are, are, have the sweetest situation of any industry group in all of Canada, 
with um, foreign market shares limited to tiny percentages. Even in the agreement we concluded with Europe, we still limited the amount of, uh, of dairy coming in from Europe to very tiny amounts. So we should easily give up on dairy, give up some market share, not give up the whole thing, but give up market share to the Americans if that satisfies them. There's no harm at all. Think about all the families in Canada that buy milk on a daily basis. If their milk prices went down a little, that wouldn't be a national tragedy. That would be something to celebrate. Oh, I completely agree with you. My, my concern is I think the dairy farmers might push back against that. There's about 20,000 of them, mainly in, in Quebec, and they've had a great run up till now um, enforcing policies that have been in their interest but haven't been in the national interest. It's probably time to uh, stand up to them a bit more. <laughs> I agree. Um, that uh, You mentioned wine as well. Uh, we've talked a lot about softwood lumber. Will those be issues, do you think? Are, are those too, too specific, or will those be part of the negotiation? Well, we um, have been, you know, BC in particular has been harassed on this softwood lumber issue for, 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 for thir- three decades. And so if we could get anything out of the agreement, it would be some kind of, you know, lasting peace in, in lumber. Um, so that's something we should be definitely on our agenda, what we could do. You know, it's sort of a flip side thing for the Americans there. Our lumber goes into American houses. Having Canadian lumber in American houses makes houses cheaper for Americans. We need to emphasize that. This is in their interest to import our lumber and not to obstruct that. And they shouldn't be caving into their industry interests on that side. So when we say, okay, we're going to give you something on dairy, we should say, you know, quid pro quo, we want something on lumber uh, in exchange for that. And it's, it's in the interest of your home buyers, and you can emphasize that, just like we'll emphasize that when we give you something on dairy, it's in the interest of our families. Uh, do you think Canada has to go into this as well um, very strong and, and with the position of this is, this is where we stand? And yes, there's room for negotiation, but we won't, be, we won't be forced to sign something that we don't think is in the best interest of our country. I think we should be cautious about that. There should, there's things that we we don't want to give away. Like we don't want the thing to be redesigned in a way that, that really gets guts the, tr- the essence of the trade agreement. Um, so we've got to be strong on certain things we don't want to give up. But on the other hand, we don't want to go in shouting about red lines. You know, we won't. There's a thing called Chapter 19 about dispute resolution. And some of the Canadian trade negotiators said that, you know, they're not giving up on that. That is something that's sort of not a hill you want to die on. It turns out Canada hasn't used Chapter 19 except three times in the last decade. We have different resolution mechanisms we can use through the World Trade Organization. So we've got to be smart. We can't sort of send our people over there and yell and scream about stuff that actually doesn't matter that much. It's better to keep a, you know, a lower profile. Um, a lot of the people negotiating on the other side are people that are sensible people that understand business interests in this all and um, and uh, carry it on quiet and make sure that, that Trump at the end can say, I, you know, I, I achieved great victory, blah, blah, blah. Um, and uh, that's sort of the smart way to go. Uh, even though he was uh, during the campaign saying over and over again, this is the worst uh, trade agreement ever and uh, it needed to be gutted. So it would, would it not seem a bit odd if we walked away with something that looked similar to what we went in with? Um, it would seem odd it, it, with a different person. But w- once you sort of study this, this U.S. president, we see that he's not really a details-oriented person. He didn't really know what he didn't like about NAFTA in the first place. 
Um, I've seen interviews where they've asked him about what specifically do you want to change in NAFTA, and he changed the discussion to talk about China's trade deficit. So he doesn't have a bunch of specific things that he thinks are wrong with NAFTA. It's a sentiment about NAFTA. Um, and so the way to sort of change that, I think, is to, talk, is to take this Team North America approach and frame it as we, Canada, U.S., and Mexico, are going to get together and produce fantastic products together. They're going to be great competition for the Europeans and the Chinese and the Japanese, et cetera. So that's sort of the way to reframe, reframe the discussion. Uh, is the way I would go if I were if I were the negotiators. All right, uh, Professor uh, Keith Head, thank you so much. We're out of time, but appreciate uh, you joining us today. Sure, nice All right. talking to you. You too. Bye bye. That is Keith Head. He is a professor in the Strategy and Business Economics Division over at the Souter School of Business at UBC, talking about the upcoming NAFTA negotiations. Time to talk a little BC politics. So we've been hearing about apologies. So we've been hearing about the Trans Mountain Pipeline. Keith Baldry with Global BC joins me on the line. Good morning to you. Good morning, Joe. Good morning. Where should we start? <laughs> Uh, you know, usually August are the dog days of news and, B- and certainly in BC politics. I usually take August off, but uh, it's been a lively month and it will likely continue to be lively with a new government in charge. Yes, uh, I imagine it will. Uh, let's start with the apology. Where do, where do we stand with that as far as uh, now there's talk of uh, there it was a public apology. No one's apologized to Gordon Wilson face to face. Do we know where things stand? Well, Bruce Ralston, the jobs minister who started this whole furor, uh, when he said that uh, Wilson had not done any work and had nothing, no written documents, now evidently has written a, a written retraction of, of his remarks uh, to Wilson. Uh, I'm not sure that's enough for Wilson. Wilson's uh, pretty steamed about this. So he, of course, the former um, BC Liberal Party leader, but Really, he should be more accurately described in this context as a former B.C. NDP cabinet minister who uh, left the, the party after the 2001 defeat and ultimately came to embrace and support Christy Clark's leadership. The NDP is one party that holds grudges, and uh, Ralston, was, um, upon uh, assuming power, was very quick to fire Wilson as the province's LNG uh, advocate, which is certainly understandable. I mean, it was a patronage appointment through and through. But then through um, gasoline on the fire by saying he had no, uh, he had not done any work and had nothing to show for it. I've talked to Wilson a couple of times, and W's interviewed him a, a numerous times. He steamed about this because, of course, it sh- there's a- ample evidence to show how much work he did, tons of documents. And he says this has sullied his reputation. He wants to continue working in the LNG sector. Uh, and he says these comments have gone international and have ruined his reputation. So I'm not sure that this uh, belated, uh, somewhat tepid, again, retraction apology from Ralston's enough, because Horgan, the premier, added uh, fuel to this by repeating Horgan's comments. So Wilson retained his lawyer. He hasn't filed any legal documentation as far as I know yet, but uh, he strikes me as a guy who's not going to step down from this fight and probably will pursue some legal action and uh, file for defamation. I thought it was interesting, too, when he commented saying he wanted to see the due diligence that had been done because, uh, as uh, both you and Mike Smith pointed out, it was a quick Google search that led to finding out what reports he had written and what work had been done. Uh, But he wanted to know what due diligence Bruce Ralston had done before making those comments publicly, uh, because if there wasn't any, he was saying that that shows malice. Yep, and and Ralston, as far as I know, uh, has yet to produce any evidence of, of what review was done. Um, and I don't think one was done. I think this was a case of 
sort of emotions getting ahead of uh, the facts here with, um, again, a bit of a payback here from against Wilson, who, you know, he was an NDP cabinet minister. Then he took part in a very divisive leadership race in 2000, uh, which Ujjal Assange ultimately won, which really divided the NDP. And you have to wonder whether some of that was the play, that the, these old memories, uh, and I've got a number of examples from the NDP of, of some of this, these, these schisms and rivalries uh, and partisan sort of camps in the party it go back generations. They don't disappear in that party. And I think Wilson may have been uh, the target of some of that, uh, some of that payback. It goes back, as I say, back, you know, 17, 18 years. Uh, d- does it seem odd, though, that, that we, we saw such strong language from Bruce, Walst- Bruce Ralston right out of the gate on something where clearly he hadn't looked and didn't see information that was, that was easily accessible? No, yeah, it it, it, um, it doesn't uh, speak well of Ralston's beginning in that job. Uh, you know what's un- unusual about this? Bruce Ralston's known has been known in opposition at least to be a very low key, uh, somewhat uh, uh, very con- almost conservative in, in terms of his opinions, uh, where he doesn't offer a lot of uh, flaming rhetoric and, and that type of thing, which is so often associated with. Politics, particularly politicians, particularly on the opposition side, he's been—he was always one of the lower key guys. And he comes out, he becomes minister, and suddenly makes some of the more inflammatory accusations that anybody's ever made. And uh, I just have to assume that Ralston received a really bad briefing here from someone who had it in for Gordon Wilson. And uh, this affair is not over, as far as uh, I can uh, see any indications of. I think uh, Wilson wants to keep this going, and he wants that. Re- he wants that evidence from Ralston. What review did you did you undergo? Uh, did you take? And I wonder whether a political staffer is not going to emerge here and be the uh, sort of the sacrificial lamb. Uh, internally for the government. Hmm, we will uh, be waiting to see if that happens. Uh, let's talk a little bit more about the Trans Mountain Pipeline expansion. Uh, no huge surprise that the NDP is following through on one of their promises, uh, which was uh, to see what kind of roadblocks they could put up for this project. Yeah, no, they, they, this was a key campaign promise, do everything they can to stop the Kinder Morgan Pipeline. Now, it's far from clear whether what they uh, uh, preparing to do is going to be successful in any way. I've not seen any legal analysis that suggests that they're going to win this. So they've appointed Tom Berger, a former NDP leader and a former B.C. Supreme Court judge, and an expert on, and this is the key part, an expert on Aboriginal rights uh, as their external counsel uh, to see what they can do in the, in the courtroom. So um, legal challenges are, are one thing. Uh, they had already ruled out, David Eby, the Attorney General, had already ruled out blocking the permits for Kinder Morgan, which a lot of people thought was their only weapon the government really had. Uh, but he took that off the table, saying the government wasn't able to do that. So that leaves them with a, with court challenges. So they're trying to get intervener status in this judicial re, uh, review of a National Energy Board decision, but a number of uh, legal analysts suggest that they're late in the day here. They, they may not get that intervener status, which now leaves open the, uh, opens the question of what other challenges they can mount. It was interesting, George Heyman, the environment minister, said he will, they, Kinder Morgan will not be allowed to put shovels in the ground on Crown land, which is the bulk of the route of, uh, of the Kinder Morgan pipeline. And I assume that eventually uh, Kinder Morgan will go to court to, to challenge that, or they will put shovels in the ground and the B.C. government will challenge that in court one way or another. And that will that will probably be the focus of, of the court challenge. And the government has signaled 
the NFP government has signaled that their basis for their legal challenge will be that in, uh, First Nations were not adequately consulted uh, for uh, the pipeline's uh, construction. Now, first, uh, Kinder Morgan will argue they have they have done lots of consultation with First Nations, and, and adequate consultation does not mean 100% buy-in by First Nations, but it does mean at least that there was uh, consultation done. So that's going to be the focus of a court challenge. And underlying this, Jill, is something that's going to start being applied to all sorts of developments and policies in B.C., and that is the NDP's adoption and embracement of what's called the United Nations Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous People, which a number of people think give First Nations a de facto veto over any development that goes on any land that they claim title to. 103% of B.C. is under Aboriginal title. Uh, so that has implications that go far beyond Kinder Morgan. But that's the heart and soul of the NDP's approach here, is that the pipeline can't proceed because it, it, it basically violates First Nations rights. And that's going to be the, the, the crux of the question once uh, they get into court. Uh, and the comments from Ellis Ross uh, were interesting as well, because he came out uh, after that saying uh, he was uh, tired of governments or tired of people almost using First Nations as tools in that it comes up in this late uh, late part of the game. Oh, wait a minute. Uh, you didn't consult with First Nations. Yeah. Ellis Ross, who's a former chief of the Heisla First Nation, um, says that you, you'll never get 100 percent consent from First Nations. It's like you won't get 100 percent buy in from it from any particular constituency, you know, whether it's, you know, ask the people of Burnaby, it's not 100% opposition, it's not 100% uh, support for Kinder Morgan. It's, it's, a, it's fractured, just as it is in First Nations. And, and Ross's argument is indeed just that, Jill, that, as you say, that it's an argument, he calls it an artificial argument raised late in the game, that, oh, we don't have 100% First Nations, therefore you can't proceed. And he says there's, uh, he views it as a uh, illegitimate sort of form of argument in that a number of First Nations, including his, embrace industrial development because a number of them are locked into grinding generational poverty that the only way out is to get jobs and uh, economic development. And whether it's LNG or Kinder Morgan or mining or something else, a lot of them re- rely on that, the natural resource sector uh, for employment. And uh, the way to get out of that poverty is to sort of boost the wealth of First Nations by having them you know, as part of this project. Indeed, Kinder Morgan has the support of a number of First Nations who signed benefits agreements with uh, Kinder Morgan to the tunes of hundreds of millions of dollars, and that will disappear if uh, Kinder Morgan disappears. And what do you think we'll see happen then? Because we also heard from uh, Kinder Morgan, from Ian Anderson, saying, yes, thank you, we will take a look at this. So we are committed to working with government, but the tone of his response was very much, this work is going to go on as scheduled. Yeah, I've talked to Ian Anderson over time, and he shows no signs of backing away here, no speculation that ultimately Kinder Morgan may just say forget it and leave. I don't think they will. Uh, they will begin construction um, in, in September, probably at their terminal in Burnaby, and on land they own. Uh, so, but, And that includes uh, probably Alberta as well, because the pipeline go, goes, of course, from Edmonton down to, to Burnaby. So... Uh, can, they will, uh, I think, confine their activities, construction activities, in the short term to land they own. Eventually, though, they will have to move on to, to their existing right-of-way, uh, which they have legal title to, and begin construction there. And that's where George Heyman's comments come into, in, into light, where he says they will not be allowed to put shovels in the ground. So that's going to be the first 
uh, firestorm in court. There will be some sort of court challenge from either side that will see them uh, go in and argue who has jurisdiction or who has the right to put uh, shovels in the ground. The second thing is that eventually Rachel Notley, the Alberta Premier, and whoever potentially succeeds her, whether it's Jason Kenney or one of the other United Conservatives there, will probably seek some sort of intervention from Alberta's point of view is that in a, it's a constitutional challenge and that B.C. does not, no province has the right to stop another province's ability to transport its goods to Tidewater for shipment. And that, that is a constitutional question that favors Alberta, that it is constitutionally uh, not allowed for B.C. to stop another province from shipping its goods. And Heyman sort of acknowledged that in his news conference, uh, where he, he did acknowledge there were constitutional limits to what BC can do. I still think at the end of the day, what, what the NDP is doing is showing they're doing whatever they can to stop it, perhaps knowing in the back of their mind there really is nothing they can do to stop the Kinder Morgan pipeline legally. And I think that where well, the ball will shift into the political court, and it will be this, this sideshow of potentially hundreds of people performing civil disobedience, protesting the pipeline, getting thrown into court, putting enormous political pressure on the government, not so much the NDP government, but the Trudeau government, to back away from the pipeline. We saw that in the 90s with Clackwood Sound, the War of the Woods. It forced the NDP government of the day to make significant changes and the forest companies to make significant changes to the way lumber was uh, harvested in B.C. because of this international protest. The same will occur with Kinder Morgan. But it's going to be interesting. The dynamic is shifting because it won't put pressure on the NDP government to change its its position because it will already be anti-Kinder Morgan. It will be on Trudeau and the Liberals to change their position. And it's far from clear whether they will in the face of what's going to be of significant and very theatrical opposition. That uh, is true. All right, Keith, we'll leave it there. Thank you so much uh, for joining us again. Anytime, Joe. Take care. You too. That is uh, Keith Baldry over at Global BC talking BC politics this morning. Well, a new study out from the Columbia Institute finds that getting to net zero emissions by the year 2050 could generate up to 20 million jobs. The study is called Jobs for Tomorrow, Canada's Building Trades and Net Zero Emissions. And joining us to talk a little bit more about this and about the findings is Charlie Beresford, Executive Director at the Columbia Institute. Charlie, thank you so much for being here. Oh, my pleasure. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, talk a little bit, if you can, about, uh, because the numbers are huge. First, it's trying to, to imagine being at 2050 and then the number of 20 million jobs. So what were you what were you looking at? It is absolutely huge. And uh, we knew that it would be a large number because when you, when you think about it logically, the, the infrastructure in our country is built by the building trades. And we are going to need a lot of new infrastructure as we move to a low-carbon economy. But it did surprise us, the the, uh, the large size. Uh, so our first our first question, really, there were two. Uh, the first one was, what are the likely pathways to net zero in Canada? And then the second question was, what does that mean for the building trades? So we looked at basically three areas of transition. Uh, one would be building out transit. Another would be, uh, of course, looking at clean energy and building out our electrical grid. And the third, we called smart communities. Included in that would be uh, new buildings and uh, and things such as uh, district energy. So just it added up to just a huge amount of jobs. We we looked at those pathways, we crunched the numbers, and we came to that really strong number of 
nearly 4 million building trades jobs between now and 2050. And then, of course, you add the multiplier factor in for the induced and indirect jobs, and you come up with that astounding number of 20 million jobs between now and 2050. And are they different jobs when we talk about the building trades? Because even if the codes change and, and things change with as far as green buildings, uh, different types of, of energy and st- and things, are they actually uh, well, new jobs? No. No, well, <laughs> what they are is jobs that contribute to the reduction of greenhouse gas emissions. So if that's what you're talking about as a green job, absolutely. I mean, those are, in fact, the jobs that people are already doing. They're applied to different projects. So as we move to a clean energy grid, we're going to be doing more solar, more wind. We're going to have to build our grid out. The, the, the actual transmission lines are going to need to be built out. Uh, and um, and when it comes to buildings, you, you put your finger on it. Uh, buildings going forward, we anticipate will be net zero buildings sooner rather than later, much as Vancouver is moving in that direction. And, of course, then we've got all those buildings that are already standing that need to be retrofitted. So there's just a a huge number of jobs involved in the infrastructure of a low-carbon economy. And I think that should be very comforting for people who work in the building trades. And uh, I think it's also kudos to the building trades for looking ahead to anticipate what our low-carbon economy might mean for people who work in this area. And it looks at transportation as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, how does that play out in that? Is it building road networks for self-driving yeah, cars? We're, we're, we were looking mostly at transit, at public transit. So we extrapolated the uh, the number that is already anticipated in the federal budget. So we were extending that number, the amount that the federal government has included that will be matched by provincial governments. And we were anticipating, well, what would that mean if we if we took that level of investment and carried it on through till 2050? So that's what we were looking at. It was public transit aspect of it. And, of course, there's a huge number of things that we actually didn't get a chance to look at in the study. One of them might be the, the coming infrastructure that will be, need to be built, for example, for electric vehicles. So there's, there's much more to explore. This really is just the beginning of that discussion. And I also would just like to point out that what we've outlined in our paper is a hugely ambitious scenario. It is a call for deeper cuts than are part of Canada's current uh, emission targets, uh, but we are holding them out as an example to show what could happen if we move ambitiously on climate. Whenever we talk about this, I think there's this idea of hope and this idea of this is the way the world's going. We see other countries going this way as well. Uh, but then there's also a bit of of people can get your their backs up saying we are still a resource-based or we do have, still have resources in Canada. And it's not as though we're going to flip the switch and move from fossil fuels to green technology 100% right away. Uh, does it look at the, the gradual shift? Yes, what we're talking about here is a transition. So we're talking about a fast transition, but it's a transition nevertheless. Uh, we we know that there's going to continue to be uh, some uh, some use for fossil uh, fossil products. Uh, even as we move into clean energy, there will be uh, a transitionary period. And it should be pointed out that oil is used for other things besides fuel as well. There are other lots of other uses for it. Um, but it does anticipate that there will be a transitionary period. 
and that that transitioning period will result in a, a cleaner grid, a cooler planet, and lots of jobs. Uh, and, and walk me through this again. I think you kind of answered this as well. But if we took the example, say, of a roof and somebody who builds a yeah. roof, and if you're building a traditional roof or if you're building a roof made of, of solar tiles, it's still the job of building the roof. So does the yeah. new job come into place of building the solar tiles or the solar panels? Or where does yeah. the new green job come in? The new job comes in the, in the kind of project that's been built. So uh, when we're building a... Uh, a net zero building, then there will be different kinds of regulations and specs that need to be taken into account as the build is going forward, for example. And that is going to be a combination of forward-looking regulatory action by all levels of government. There's a, there's a federal building code, there's a provincial uh, building code, and there's, uh, there's also the scope that local governments have. So as all governing bodies look ahead and assist in the transition, you can, you can see that there'll be tightening expectations. So it's just an example. I mean, there will need to be some additional training that goes hand in hand, and that will emerge as the demand, as the project demand comes forward. All right. Well, very uh, interesting findings in the report uh, and looking ahead to, to 2050. Uh, is, it, is it 2050 or does it break it down kind of the, the, the gradual way we get to that point? No, we use 2050 as the end point. Um, and you might, you might remember that the Paris Agreement calls for net zero emissions by the middle of the uh, second half of this century. So we chose the, the beginning point, the early point in that trajectory. All right. Well, Charlie Beresford, thank you so much for joining us today and talking a bit more about the report. Uh, I'm taking it people can go to your website if they want to read more about the findings. They can, www.columbiainstitute.ca. And thank you very much for your time this morning. All right. Thanks so much. That is uh, Charlie Beresford, Executive Director at the Columbia Institute. 9.33 on a Sunday morning. That means it's time to check in with Claire Newell. We're going to take a look at some of the great deals out there. And Claire, you also have some tips for us this morning because nobody likes standing in line. Oh, Jill, you are so right. And I don't think anyone hates it more than my 15-year-old son who one day we were uh, sitting beside each other on a plane. We were heading off on a trip. And he goes, you know, Mom, I know you, you know, travel is really what you are all about I don't really like it. (laughs) I thought, oh no. Okay, we've taken these kids all over the place. They've been quite spoiled on where they've been able to travel. But he said, I said, what do you mean? Like, what about it don't you love? And he said, mom, every time I turn around, I'm standing in line waiting and I don't like that. And I think he kind of, you know, he nailed it because when you roll up and you need to get your parking token, you are in a car usually in a lineup then you get into the airport and you're standing in line to check in then for security then customs and then even at the end of the trip there's just nothing worse than standing around waiting for your bag to come off with gazillions of people oh clary there oh sorry you're the the line there it's kind of buzzed off are you there Ooh. yeah oh i am there we go Yes, it, it did buzz off. I'm sorry about that. Yeah, so I get what he was saying, but and, and it is an inevitable part of travel. But there are some ways that you can cut some cues. So here, um, I don't think this is any secret. For those who have one, I can guarantee they love it. And that is a Nexus card. So for about $50, 
you get right through some of the lineups and it can be going across the border with your vehicle but it can also be at the airport and i know i've seen people who would who have as i'm walking by them with my nexus card goes i would pay anything <laughs> to get in your lineup. And I said, it's only $50 for five years. You, it's something that's worth doing. I, it is annoying. You do have a long uh, application to go through. You have to do your fingerprints. You have to have an interview, but it is worth it. And the best way to get the information on that is the website. Uh, actually just Google search goes like G O E S and it will come up with the application, but well worth looking into. And the thing I'm about often surprised how few people use Oh, sorry. Go I was ahead, I was just going to say about Nexus. I think people tend to think of it only as really beneficial when you're driving across the land border, but don't realize when you're at the airports, even when they don't have to have a Nexus line, a lot of times there'll be one just for convenience for people. And you really do just fly by everybody else in the lineup. I don't know how many times I've used my Nexus card. Just so grateful that I actually went through the process. And for my kids, and when we are traveling with, say, a friend of my kids who doesn't have a Nexus card, you can really see the difference because we're through 20 minutes, 30 minutes faster in some cases. Not all the time. Uh, sometimes it's, you know, maybe five or 10 minutes. But there are times where you're coming home from a big trip and three big international flights are coming in at the same time. And that's when it really, really pays. So the other thing that I'm surprised people don't use, and I know we have a bit of a delay for those who are listening. So Jill, hopefully, if you want to interject, please do. And I'll give you some time. But is the self-serve kiosks or um, checking in online, whether it's from work or from home. So few people are doing this uh, when they have the ability to do it. So if you get an e-ticket and you have the ability to check in online, do it. It will save you so much time, especially if you only need to drop your bag or uh, even if you're doing carry-on, you head straight to security. You bypass all of that kind of monkey motion at the beginning to check in. And also on those two, I think what people sometimes forget is if you're flying on points, if you're flying with somebody and you've booked on points, if you don't do the online check-in and if you don't do that, there's a good chance once you get there, not only are you going to be standing in lines, you're probably not going to sit together because they're going to assign your seats there. Everybody else has checked in online, already chosen their seats, and you're kind of the last of the bunch. You are the last of the bunch. Um, it's not just airlines, though. Let's talk a little bit about um whether you're going into a hotel or you're renting a vehicle, I find that there are more and more special lines for those who have joined the loyalty programs. And in most cases, these are free to join. And even the first tier, if you are using, say, Hertz rental car or going into a Hyatt for the very first time, there's often a lineup for those. And the process is so much quicker to do the check-in for a car or a hotel. So check those uh, loyalty programs out there. Again, uh, you get a lot of emails uh, per, with the promotions and it can take a few minutes to actually join, but it is well worth it, especially because it's free. And if you have the chance, especially if there is economy plus or if you have points and can do business class, you will know, of course, that upgrading your plane ticket means you get priority boarding, less lineups, you're first on, first off, and it comes in really handy if you have the ability to do it. And a lot of airlines have several different classes of service now, in most cases, at least three. So economy, premium economy, and business. And the difference between economy and premium economy 
is nowhere near as much as the kind of hefty fees you have to pay if you want to upgrade to business class. So look into that because your airline may have that and it may be as little as um, $100 to actually upgrade on a short haul flight, maybe $200, $300 for a longer haul flight and an international a bit more than that. But it is nice. It is really nice, especially the extra five or six inches of legroom. Yes, uh, for sure. Uh, you also talked about um, the IP, about uh, loyalty programs, but also if you're going to places like Disneyland, you're going to parks, uh, there are ways, if you plan ahead, there are some ways you can try and at least uh, avoid the lineups. Well, for sure. Disneyland has, uh, they are really organized. Any of the Disney parks have fast passes or parent passes where you can go get a ticket and then come back without the long lineups. But for other amusement parks, look at the difference between a VIP pass and a regular pass. And the reason I'm saying this is that my own family went to Knott's Berry Farm. The difference between the the passes at the time, I'm not sure what the difference is now, was about $20 per person. So yes, it would have been $80 more US for our family of four to do this. But we waited three hours for our first ride, the Ghost Rider. We thought we were done when we had gone the first level and wound around like a snake. When we had to go up the stairs and do the same thing on the second floor, you should have seen my husband. We did two rides and he said, we're out of here. So uh, my poor kids only got two rides there. If we had done the uh, amusement park VIP pass at that particular park, we would have been able to knock off. 10 rides probably in the same amount of time and I can tell you your kids will love it and you will be so happy you do it. Not available at all amusement parks but certainly at some of the big players. Um, So do you want to talk about some deals? Yes let's do that. Okay so I know I sent you a few and I'm totally changing my mind because some really good ones came across my desk. So we have some Vegas on sale for the fall dates which is quite early. So November the 26th, December 3rd, or December 10th. This is for airfare and three nights hotels staying at the Planet Hollywood. If you've not been to Vegas, this is a four-star property right in the middle of the Strip. Lots going on there, lots of great restaurants, also a lot of good concerts. So at that time of the year, I think J-Lo and Britney, they're all, they all are doing shows in residence there. The package for air and three nights staying at the Planet Hollywood is $329.00 taxes of 170 so 499 hmm. uh, for air hotel and tax a well, good little package the next one is for Kauai, which is the garden island of hawaii and this is also for fall dates november 22nd through until december 11th right after that becomes high season for the holidays so if you can go between the 22nd of november and the 11th of december you'll save a, a whack probably by going then. So it's airfare and seven nights hotel for $8.99. Taxes on that package are $228. So it's $1,127 all in for that week-long getaway to Kauai. The last one I'm going to talk about is to Bali, Indonesia. So we had a deal for October and November dates that I thought was tremendous. It was based on a seat sale and now they've opened it up into January through the end of May of 2018. So you have lots of time to plan. There is a window of time, kind of the last three weeks of February because of Chinese New Year, that it's not applicable, it's a bit more, but certainly a lot of dates between then. Airfare, 12 nights hotel, your breakfast every day, five sightseeing tours. So you'll get to see some of the history and the culture and the the great sites that are in Bali, as well as your transfers for $1,099. 
taxes on that package are $430. So it works out to $15.29 per person. And just the reason I'm telling you guys this now is because on September the 15th, that package goes up by $500. So a really good deal to Bali, Indonesia, if you've not been to that part of the world and you want to knock it off your bucket list. That's amazing. The airfare and 12 nights. That's a, that's a long trip. I think you want to go for 12 nights to Bali. I mean, it is a long flight and there's a lot to see and do there. Certainly you can just sit on the beach and chill out, but there's a lot of beautiful temples and really cool ways that they farm. And I just, there's a lot to see and do in that part of the world. And we're seeing so many really good deals to Asia simply because there's about five times the number of flights to Asia than there were just five years ago. So the prices have just come way, way down. And so whether you want to go to China or Vietnam or Cambodia, um, this is the the time to to do it. Indeed. All right. Well, those are some great, great deals. Anything else you want to put out there, Claire? Well, there is another bucket list trip that I think is really worth doing. It's it's to India and it's based on a two-for-one promotion. The only date that I can find this deal for at this price is on March the the 9th of 2018. So you have some time to plan. And it's just such a beautiful itinerary. It's Delhi, Jaipur, and Agra, which is where the Taj Mahal is. And it's airfare, eight-night guided vacation with a tour guide that leaves with you from Vancouver. So you are taken care of from tip to tail on this vacation. English-speaking guide the entire time. All of the sightseeing tours Virtually all of your meals are included and the transfers and you're staying in the minimum would be a four and a half star. Most are five star properties. Eight nights is doable for a lot of people who are afraid of India. A lot of people are afraid to go to that part of the world and get sick. It's the first adult paying $39.90 plus tax of $580. The second adult is free. They just pay the taxes of $580. Unbelievable deal. $25.75 per person is what that works out to. Wow, that is a good, uh, good. If you've never been and maybe you can get over your fear of going, that's a good one. Yeah, and it's you can see the light at the end of the tunnel of eight nights. <laughs> I know people who are, are deathly afraid of going to India, and I'm telling you, this package we've had, we've done really successfully. Everyone's come back without getting sick and had such a great time. Um, I know it's one that's on my bucket list for sure. All right. Well, Claire, some great, great deals and great tips. Uh, we will chat with you again next Sunday. Thanks so much, Jill. And everything's online for everyone at TravelBestBets.com. Well, you've likely heard in the news that people or some people in Surrey are upset with plans for Hawthorne Park, particularly with plans to build two roads through the park. And they would like council to give them a bigger window to collect signatures on a petition. Joining us to talk a little bit more about this is uh, Stephen Pettigrew. He is uh, with the Save Hawthorne Rotary Park. Stephen, thank you so much for being with us this morning. Good morning to you. Good morning. Uh, For people who aren't familiar with the story, can you just give us a bit of background on how this first came about uh, and how you learned uh, about the plans that the city of Surrey has for Hawthorne Park? Sure. I'm one of the local residents that's been affected by the park, and we were informed just a few months back that the city's planning to put a road through the park. And not only that, but they're planning to actually make a a wider road throughout our entire uh, northern part of Surrey. This is what the, uh, the process was. We've since found out that the park is protected under a certain bylaw and that the city has been blocked and they can no longer do this, or so we thought. And so instead of the city uh, going ahead and honoring the bylaw that was put there to protect the park, 
they've implemented a process called the alternative approval process, which will remove the bylaw. And then once the bylaw is removed, they can put the roads through the park and through people's homes. So this is what we're currently fighting at this point. And at this point, how many signatures do you have? Oh, um, I'd say we're up to about four inches. Uh, so we're trying to still count them, but so I'm just measuring it by volume right now. So uh, we're into the, the hundreds, moving towards the thousands, probably. Uh, it's it, we just started on this week. I guess I should probably answer. Um, this is the second time we've done this. The first time we collected over 5,000 signatures, and we pre- we took that to city council. We had a meeting with them, so we presented a city council with fi- over 5,000 signatures. And we had over 100 people at one of their meetings, and we just had the place filled to capacity. And it was an incredible night, and there was a sound that night that I'll, I'll never forget that happened during the council meeting. And that, that was the sound of, of, the, uh, of democracy being snuffed out, because they just couldn't care less what we had to say. I, I, I was, well, I was going to ask, what has the response been to oh, your yeah. concerns? They just, literally, they just couldn't care less. They went in there to the meeting. They, they have an agenda. They know what they want to do, and it really makes no difference what we have to say. That's what it really comes down to. They, they say all these nice words and, oh, we're concerned, and, oh, we empathize with you, but they just really couldn't care less. They pushed this road through. So we've already given them 5,000 signatures, but apparently that wasn't enough. So now they want to have over 31,000 signatures. So they've given us just a few weeks to do that. And, and uh, go ahead. Oh, sorry. So from what I understand, you have until, is it September 22nd to get all of the signatures? Yeah, that's right. Uh, so they've, uh, and so they're implementing this uh, provincial process called the alternative approval process. And so that process basically allows us to, or want, they want us to get 10% of the people that voted in Surrey. Um, but it actually is more than 10% because if you take, if you do it as a percentage of the people that voted in the last election, you're looking at 29%. And they've just given us, and they're breaking all sorts of uh, faith rules of the uh, the alternative approval process has laid out certain guidelines and procedures, and they couldn't care less about those either. You know, for example, the alternative approval process that this thing should be done not during vacation time. This should be done when the voting people are back and they're available. So what do they do? The exact opposite. They do this during the summertime when no one's around, and they had an opportunity. They could have allowed it to be um, beyond 30 days, you know, to give people a chance. If they really wanted to hear from us, again, they couldn't care less. They did the minimum. So they're just doing this over and over and over. Um, so that's what my comment before that this, you know, democracy is no longer alive in Syria. And uh, oh, I've got to mention that we've got a, a rally coming up on the, this Thursday. So everybody, please, you're invited to come join us at the Our Lady of Good Council in the auditorium on 139th and 104th. So it's 10460 139th Street on this Thursday at 645. People can come down. We have keynote speakers there, and there's going to be a presentation done. There's going to be these new forms that we have to fill out, all sorts of fun stuff happening tonight. So you come and join us, too. You can uh, have fun there. All right. And uh, not to, to state the obvious, because I think any time there's a plan, and we've had it uh, in other municipalities, too, if to put pavement in a park, uh, there is opposition. Uh, do you feel it will ruin the park if this plan goes ahead? Oh, Definitely. Yeah, this uh, this road is going to you know this is why they have this is why this um, bylaw is put in place to protect the park from exactly this sort of destruction, and you know, and where do they put the road? They put the road through the most sensitive part of the park, so they're putting it through some um, you know by the city the city of Surrey has designated these areas as ecologically sensitive areas. It's going through bog area. It's going through red listed uh, streams. It's taking on headwaters of the Bonacord River. 
And so all of this is going to be scooped out with a giant shovel and, of course, more roads in our, in our city parks here. Yeah, so it's, it's going to definitely decimate. And they're, they're trying to you know, lead us astray by saying, oh, well, we're going to give you all these beautiful park enhancements. And they're tying it to the road. Well, we're not that stupid. You know, we know we can have these park enhancements without the road. So they're just, they're just selling us a, a really bad story. How confident are you you can get the 30,000-plus signatures you need? Well, I think that we can do it. Yeah, I, know, I know it's an immense task. You know, to put it in perspective, we need to, we need to actually get 35,000 because we need to put a 10% buffer in. So we're getting 35,000. And I was been told that the mayor, when she was elected to council, she only had 45,000. So it shows you how much we have to get. You know, we can almost run for mayor or something like that. It's ridiculous. <laughs> well, um, Stephen, we'll continue watching this, and I hope there's a big turnout at the rally. Uh, we're out of time, but I appreciate your thoughts this morning. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. Have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. That is Stephen Pettigrew. He is with the Save Hawthorne Rotary Park. And again, if you want to check out the rally, it's coming up this Thursday, August 17th, 6.45 to 9 p.m. That's taking place at the Our Lady of Good Counsel's School Auditorium on 139th Street in Surrey. There you have it. 7.06 on this Sunday morning, as you just heard in that newscast, one man is now facing charges, a charge of murder after a car plowed into a crowd at a rally where there had already been many problems between clashes between two groups. So we're joined now by Lauren Berg, a crime reporter with The Daily Progress, which is reporting on what happened yesterday. Lauren, thank you so much for taking a few minutes to chat with us this morning. Oh, absolutely. Uh, So what do we know exactly about how things unfolded yesterday? Um, well, I got to the park at about 9.30 yesterday morning, um, and it pretty it was pretty quiet. Um, there were some people gathered in the park from the alt-right and also some counter-protesters standing across from them. Um, about half an hour later, um, things started getting a little more rough. Um, there were insults thrown back and forth um, as more groups kind of came in. Um, and then just as the day kind of kept going, at about 11.30, police declared an unlawful assembly um, after... A lot of people started throwing punches and thing, water bottles were thrown. Um, I saw a lot of, uh, there were some flares being thrown. Um, so at that point, police needed everyone to get out of the area lest they be arrested. And what happened when police told people to leave? Um, it took a while to get people to actually get going. Um, uh, a lot of, I saw a lot of counter-protesters start moving down the street towards, um, down Market Street towards the parking garage area. Um, the demonstrators in the park, um, also started making their way down that way. So there were some altercations as they were leaving, but police managed to get everyone out of the park fairly quickly from my point of view. Um, I think it took about 15, 20 minutes to get everyone out of the park as police started making their way into the park to make sure no one else went back in. And so when did things, uh, things had turned ugly, it seemed, uh, then from the very beginning with the, with the, the two different groups clashing. Uh, what happened after that? Um, uh, I saw people throwing things at each other. So I saw paint balloons and a witness told me that there was pepper spray in the paint. Um, it just, the police kind of stood on the outskirts and watched from the perimeter for a bit. But when... Um, a big scuffle broke out. I saw a lot of punches being thrown um, just outside the entrance to the park. Um, and I think it was at that point that the police decided to declare the unlawful assembly and try to get everyone out of the area. 
And so how long was it? And then it was mid-afternoon, wasn't it, when, when we saw the car or the car that, that drove into the crowd? Was it, did things kind of escalate throughout the day? Um, not too much. Um, on the downtown mall itself, I did see a couple of little small groups try to, um, they starting fights with each other, but they broke up fairly quickly. Um, there were other protesters nearby that were trying to keep people calm and stop throwing punches after the car crashed into so many people and injured a lot of people. Um, so after that, the mall actually got pretty quiet, which was eerie for a Saturday afternoon. Um, it's usually pretty busy with a lot of restaurants and businesses. Um, but yeah, probably about 3 p.m. is when it started to get real quiet and people started to go home. And did you see or where were you when the crash took place? Um, I heard about it and made my way over there and I got there pretty quick after it happened. Um, I didn't see the the charger, which is the vehicle that um, was drove through the crowd. Um, but when I got there, there were still about nine people on the ground um, and medics were treating them. Um, I saw a couple people loaded up into ambulances and taken to the local hospital. Um, I saw a woman bleeding from the head, and she, it looked like she had a cast on her arm, and they were um, a, trying to get her um, onto a gurney and taken into a, an ambulance. So, And I saw a lot of people standing around um, crying and hugging. Uh, there were some protesters that got a little upset with some of the reporters on the scene um, and tried to get them to back away and stop taking photos, and they didn't want to talk to anyone. Um, so it, it got a little bit crazy. And didn't want to talk to anybody just because of the the tensions or or what in the moment or what were they mad about? I think I think it was mostly about um, wanting the firefighters and the rescue squad to be able to get to the victims and help them and get them out of there as quickly as possible. Um, But I think a lot of tensions were high just because it it, at the time a lot of people thought it was an intentional um, crash uh, that caused a lot of injury to counter protesters who were there to demonstrate against the alt-right demonstrators. Um, So I think tensions were pretty high at that point. Uh, I've been reading comments about this and seeing what people are saying about this. And it seems to be a mix of people saying uh, that they're extremely surprised that this happened uh, and others saying they're not, that they haven't felt safe for some time and there's been this divide or there's been this feeling of of the group, the original group, the 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 Unite the Right group that had held the rally in the first place. Uh, what feeling did you get, or, or leading up to this, uh, were you surprised at all that this unfolded yesterday? Um, I can't say I was completely surprised. We, uh, Mr. Jason Kessler, who was one of the leaders of the Unite the Right group, has is a local from Charlottesville, and for the past few months, it's he's voiced his opinions about um, city council wanting to remove these Confederate statues. Um, he has op- an opposition with uh, Wes Bellamy, which is our vice mayor. Um, after uh, he dug up some old tweets that Mr. Bellamy wrote um, regarding uh, white people and women. Um, so I'm not, I can't say I'm surprised that this happened, but I was, a little surprised at how chaotic and violent it got. This is not something we've ever seen here before. Um, I thought this just isn't normal for our city. We've never had this many people come in and do a lot of violent acts in our downtown area. Uh, And do we know anything about uh, the man who's been charged, uh, the man from Ohio? He's now been charged with second-degree murder in the case. A 32-year-old woman died. Do we know anything about uh, James Alex Fields, Jr.? 
Um, not much more than what's already out there. Um, he's from a place, I believe, called Mommy, Ohio. Um, there have been photos of him seen in the alt-right demonstrator group. Um, I think he's holding a shield in one of them. Um, but at this point, we don't really know much about it. Um, he's been in custody um, since last night. Um, and I spoke to the jail, and they just they were only able to tell me his charges. Um, that's about all we know right now. And what about today? I know it's still early, um, uh, not as early as it is here. But uh, what about today and, and the thoughts and moving forward today? How, are, how What's the feeling there today? Um, it, I'm getting a lot of uh, just a feeling of shock around here. Um, our governor has been attending a couple of uh, local church services. Um, uh, it's, just, it's eerily quiet around here. I think a lot of people are staying home, not really sure if anything else is going to happen. Um, and a lot of businesses are not open yet, which normally on a Sunday morning they probably would be at this point. So I think a lot of people are just kind of waiting to see what happens. And, and I don't know if you can answer this, but with the idea of Charlottesville, and like you said, this individual, uh, Jason Kessler, had been been seen, uh, had been quite vocal I- in the past. Uh, what is it? Is it is it Charlottesville itself? Is it is there something different about Charlottesville, or or do you think that this is something that's happening in a lot of different places, and things just happened to, to boil over yesterday in Charlottesville? Um, yeah, you know, I'm not sure why Charlottesville's kind of been chosen uh, maybe um richard spencer is a university of virginia grad so maybe that has something to do with it um jason kessler is local here so he tends to draw people towards him so um but i don't want to speculate too much because i'm not sure why charlottesville has been chosen well lauren i appreciate uh, you joining us today and uh, sharing your experience uh, with us we'll continue following this in the news uh, but thank you so much yeah thank you all right, that is Lauren Berg. She is a crime reporter with The Daily Progress. Uh, they covered the rallies and uh, the fatal crash that took place in the crowd. And as you've been hearing in the news, uh, one man from Ohio now charged with second-degree murder. That after the car plowed into that crowd, a 32-year-old woman was killed, 19 others injured in that chaos. 6.45 on this Sunday morning. For the listener who wrote in about one particular movie that he wanted Rick to take a look at, Fear Not, it is on the list today. But we're not starting with it. We're starting with something else. Uh, Rick Forchuk is on the line. Good morning to you. Good morning, Jill. Good morning. We're starting with Annabelle. Yes, Annabelle Creation. And Jill, I think this will be pretty much at the top of the list of movies that have the most scares per minute of any film I've ever seen. It's not a slasher horror film, but rather as a prequel to the Annabelle from 2014 that sort of introduced us to the doll that was a receptacle for pure evil. Now, trying to keep the chronology of this series of horror films, some based on actual events, straight in our minds is very difficult. The Conjuring started it in 2013 with spiritual and ghost detectives Ed and Lorraine Warren, played by Patrick Wilson and Vera Farmiga, investigating a family haunted by evil in their home. Well documented as an actual case, there's little doubt that the movie was factual to the extent that it can be. The haunted doll, Annabelle, had a small mention in this movie. Next came Annabelle, which was a sort of origin story for the doll. The Warrens are not part of that movie. It was purely made up for the film and had no basis in fact whatsoever. Conjuring 2 in 2016 gave us another factual case investigated by the Warrens, the so-called Enfield Hauntings, which is probably the best documented such case ever. And now, Annabelle Creation, another story purely made up for the movie, but it's a beauty. 
set sometime in the late 1940s in rural America, we first see a tragic accident from a dozen years before in which a young girl is hit by a car and dies right in front of her parents while on the way home from church. The farm and the big old house are in disrepair as a decrepit old bus pulls up in the yard containing a half dozen young girls 12, months, 12 years later, as well as a nun, Sister Charlotte, played by Stephanie Sigmund. The girls and orphans, uh, are they're, they're orphans, the orphanage is closed and they're all homeless, but they've learned that Samuel Mullins, who used to be a doll maker before the accident that claimed his daughter, was offering his home as a place for the girls to stay. It's a sad, strange place, and we're told that Mrs. Mullins is an invalid and is rarely seen. It isn't long before the girls discover a doll locked in a room papered with pages from a Bible, and soon the demon that resides there is attempting to take their souls for its own use. The shocks and the scares are jarring, they come out of nowhere, and there's very little predictability as to what will happen next. The girls are terrified as the action plays out. Sister Charlotte tries to save the day, but is hampered by the sheer force of the demon, and she too is terrified, and Jill, so is I. This is one of the best movies of this genre I've ever experienced. The rating is 14A. If you like a real good horror chiller, this one will do it for you. Sounds like it. Yeah, it's a good one. Annabelle Creation. A much different film, The Glass Castle. Yeah, sometimes, Jill, extraordinary storytelling of actual events can be Oscar material, and sometimes it can evoke terrible sadness. Uh, this film, based on the best-selling book by Jeanette Walls, is both, depending on your viewpoint. Uh, Walls' book stayed on the New York Times bestseller list for more than five years, and it may be fair to say that the book was better, but that's left to the eye of the beholder. Growing up in a terrible, dysfunctional family headed by her alcoholic father, Rex, played by Woody Harrelson, and her I-don't-need-kids-I'm-an-artist mother, Rosemary, played by Naomi Watts, we see the story through the eyes of Jeanette, played by two younger actresses in her early years and defined by Brie Larson, the Oscar winner from Room, uh, in her late teens and as an adult. The family is itinerant. As soon as the bills pile up to the point where an eviction or worse is the only logical outcome, Jeanette and her siblings are packed up and whisked away to another locale, living a life that sometimes requires dumpster diving to survive and sometimes living in such squalor and ramshackle houses with no heat and no plumbing that they have to compete with the rats and snakes for a place to rest. Harrelson is an unsympathetic father who, along with his artist wife, has the family pretty much convinced that this is all just one big adventure. And the subtext here is that if told something often enough, it can become your reality. The sadness is that uh, there may be many families who struggle this way. We don't see them in our day-to-day lives because they live on the margins, invisible to most of us. And a movie such as this swipes the curtain aside. It's depressing at times, it's triumphant at other times, but overall a very sad story, but very well made. The rating is 14A, Jill. That's The Glass Castle. All right. And Detroit was the one we got the email about. Yeah, this movie was released last week, and I chose to focus on The Dark Tower, which was the number one movie at the box office for the weekend, and the Holly Berry Kidnap movie, which was number five and was highly promoted. That prompted the email to you, Jill, from listener Wayne Bresch, who took exception to my omission because he says in part, uh, quote, Detroit is a far superior movie to the two he actually reviewed. I'm the he he's referring to. Uh, Wayne asks further from my thoughts on this true story of the Detroit race riots in 1967 and a terrible incident in the Algiers Motel where white police officers allegedly murdered black youths. 
Time doesn't often allow for the reviewing Jill of every movie, as you know, and not every movie is worthy of review. So Detroit, which was produced by Catherine Bigelow, The Hurt Locker and Zero Dark Thirty, uh, and was written by Mark Bull, who was her partner on Bigelow's previous two movies, is an interesting series of events on a theme that we've seen many times before in such films as Selma, Freedom Riders, The Help, Twelve Years a Slave, Birth of a Nation, uh, that of the terrible treatment of human beings of one color and culture by human beings of another color and culture. There are many messages in Detroit, but the problem I had with the film is that uh, many of the unanswered questions from the events of 50 years ago are still unanswered, but are given new life by the writer, Mark Bull, who is pretty openly admitted to using a great deal of poetic license. In many instances, what we see is given as fact, but it's just a creation of the writer, meaning don't treat Detroit like a documentary full of facts, but rather as a movie built around its entertainment value in a fashion similar to to what writer Oliver Stone did with his movie JFK about his spin on how the Kennedy assassination came down. Uh, now, Jill, having done all of that, I have no time to review the other new movie this week, the animated feature Nut Job 2, Nutty by Nature. Somebody is going to be unhappy about that. So many questions, yes. All right, so, so we won't get to Nutty by Nature, uh, but we have The Founder is out on Netflix. Yeah, this is a terrific movie. It's from last year. Uh, Michael Keaton is decidedly discomforting as Ray Kroc in this excellent biopic that tells the story of the beginning of McDonald's, going from one family-run location in San Bernardino, California, to the biggest distributor of fast food in the world. Now, the film opens as we see Kroc, a somewhat itinerant salesman of restaurant equipment, such as milkshake machines, who has a difficult time selling his wares as he goes from town to town. When he happens on the location owned by the McDonald brothers, Dick and Mac, played by Nick Offerman and John Carroll Lynch, he tells them that he sees franchise written all over the business. Over time, Croc goes from being their junior partner to someone who manages to take the business away from them completely, making all of the McDonald's and its future his and his alone. Laura Dern is excellent as Croc's long-suffering wife, Ethel. The rating is 14A, Jill. That's called The Founder. It's a very good movie. Yes, I agree. Uh, Ricky and the Flash. Yeah, from two years ago. And just as she did in Florence Foster Jenkins and Mamma Mia, Meryl Streep does her own singing here, only this time it's rock and roll as she plays in a bar band, always believing that she is on the edge of greatness. In order to pursue that dream, Streep, whose character is named Linda, abandoned her family and now takes up with her band leader, Greg, played by Rick Springfield. She gets a call from her ex-husband telling her of a family emergency. She shows up at her former home looking to help her daughter, played by Streep's real-life daughter, Mamie Gummer. Uh, Determined to punish her for walking out on them, the family is not all that welcoming to Linda. The music here, though, is the real thing, as Ricky's band is made up of very talented musicians, including the late Rick Rojas, who played with Neil Young and Crazy Horse. The rating's 14A. That's Ricky and the Flash, Jill, and it's on Netflix. All right, and we don't have too much time, but we've got Amazon Prime and the Teen Choice Awards. Yep, All Dogs Go to Heaven on Amazon Prime. It's from 1989. It's uh, got voices here by Burt Reynolds. Uh, It's the story of Charlie B. Barkin, a dog in heaven who comes back down to earth in order to extract revenge on his killer by using an orphan girl for help. Uh, Despite the dark-sounding subject matter, this is a great movie for kids. It is a G rating, suitable for all audience members. And tonight, the 2017 Teen Choice Awards, uh, teens aged 13 through 19, uh, were the ones voting for their favorites for this television show in the fields of music, film, TV, comedy, sport, and the internet through various social media sites. 
John Cena of the WWE and Victoria Justice are the hosts. We'll see if the fate of the Furious or Wonder Woman takes the top movie spot. We'll also see if Harry Styles is viewed as the best bet for breakout movie star. Lots of guests, lots of useful star watching. That is tonight on Global, Joe. All right, sounds good. On that note, Rick, thank you so much, and we'll talk to you next weekend. You bet. Thanks, Joe. That is Rick Forchuk. He joins us every Sunday morning, as you know, letting us know what's happening in theaters as well as on the smaller screen. Vancouver's News, Vancouver's Talk. This is News Talk 980 CKNW.